Hello and welcome to episode number 391 of the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, growing as we are, and various authors, professors, scientists, knowledge, bringing it to all of you, the listeners, as the show continues to grow, short clips here and there, subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, wherever it might be, let's build this thing to a great thing. On this episode here, we have the author of this book right here, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the right to think freely in the age of neurotechnology, Nida A. Farani joins us on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is Iranian-American. I am Persian-Armenian from Iran, so there is a linkage there. She's an author, distinguished professor, and scholar on the ramifications of new technology on society, law, and ethics. She's author of this book and covers topics in relation to how this will affect our brain being protected in a way the processing underneath, on the inside, is it safe? Can we safeguard it? Is it being uh, permeated, being uh, entered into? We will find out more about that. Nida, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here with you. Very glad to have you on. Very important topic. The brain, to me, has always been the most interesting thing on the planet because so much of what's on the earth is impacted by what's in our thoughts, whereas a rock is not doing so much or a lake is sitting there, but we are active in making changes. Those are also important as well. Now, before we get into the material of the book, your path, take us through your path into education, law, learning. How would you describe you two here? So um, I uh, took a somewhat seemingly direct path, but it wasn't so direct because I didn't intend to be where I am. It just happened based on what I was really passionate about. So um, did an undergraduate in genetics and cell biology, was really thinking I was going to be pre-med because I was really passionate about the science. Um, ended up deciding probably I didn't want to practice medicine. I was much more interested in the legal and social implications of what I was learning. And so from there, I ended up... Um, you know, doing different things. I did strategy consulting for a few years in healthcare and biotech, decided to go on to get graduate degrees, and so did graduate degrees in law and philosophy and um, science. And then after all of that, I thought, well, maybe I'll practice law, but maybe not, and found my way into academia where I've been ever since. Which part have you connected with most along the way? What is the most ideal? I am doing that, and that suits me the most. Is it Teaching, is it research, is it? Um, I think it's probably research and teaching and engagement. I mean, it's it's all of them. It's it's Academia allows you to do all of those things at once. So I love having students and connecting with them, especially seeing their passion for what they're going to do ignite. Um, but I also just feel incredibly privileged to get to research and write about and engage on the things that I care about the most in life. And so the opportunity to have that freedom to really explore the things I'm passionate about and to write about them and to share those thoughts and ideas and publications and in talks throughout the world. Um, I think that part has been incredibly gratifying and um, probably the most, most meaningful for me. Mm -hmm. Behind you, we have a shelf of various Content. What kind of books or material have you absorbed over recent years? What categories would you say you look into, you like to learn from? Um, so I'm, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. And so um, what you'll find if you go spend some time on those bookshelves is that you'll have sections that are neuroscience and sections that are genetics and sections that are emerging tech, sections that are kind of pure philosophy and sections that are pure law, whether it's human rights law or criminal law or um, kind of philosophy of law, you're going to find sections up there on each of them, and they're kind of thematically grouped according to that. Um, so I, I really deep, like, do a deep dive into each of them. And, and recently, to write this book, it was really spending a lot of time with all three of those, which was a lot of primary texts around neuroscience, a, a lot of primary texts around philosophy and ancient philosophy and um, modern philosophy, and then a lot on the legal and human rights law area. When you're creating a work such as this fine book, how much do you have to get in, make that your world? How helpful is that versus like a thing you do for a period during the day 
which one do you lean towards? And if it's the making it your world thing, how important is that? I mean, I think there's a lot of making it my world and that um, it's hard when I'm deeply immersed in something like the book to not be thinking about it a lot. And, you know, in fact, if, um, you know, for people who read the book, they'll find there's a lot of my personal life that's interwoven into the book itself, you know, so I might be sitting and watching a cartoon with my kids, but the cartoon picks up on thematic strands that I'm thinking about and, and connecting up. And so I, I, I really feel like my, I live, breathe, sleep, about a lot of the issues they I see them everywhere I don't I don't like think about them in a cabined way so um I refer to a cartoon there's there's a part of the book where I I talk about watching um how to train your dragon too with my eight-year-old and um in in that movie which again is an animated film there's this part where like the alpha dragon engages in mind control of the other dragons and has one of, you know, the dragons that we really come to love and care about um, act contrary to his own will and to do things that are contrary to like what he really believes and the goodness of the dragon that we've come to learn and love. And, you know, I was pained watching that, not in the traditional like, oh, here's a movie, I'm just watching that. But, you know, thinking about um, what I'd been reading about recently with respect to mind-controlled experiments that had been run in the United States by the CIA and by the intelligence agencies and in other countries worldwide. And so that's where my brain goes, right? My brain is like partly present and watching the movie and then, you know, kind of I'm living in this world of ideas that I'm thinking about and, and I'm seeing it everywhere in the modern world that I'm engaged in as well. I can see we both have a very active mind that takes in the moment but also adds on to it at the same time, which is different. Some individuals are much more just like taken and it's not processing at that time. It comes like later on a little bit. Yeah. But I think a lot of the great creators have that combo of, oh, and how does this link to what I would like you to You just express? start to see it everywhere. It's hard not to, right? So, yeah. That's true. It's part of your framework. Yeah. Now, we have brains, which is wonderful. And why... Is there a battle for our brain? What is in there to capture? What caused the initiative to discuss that? Is there a danger up in upcoming years in relation to the thoughts that we have in our own mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say the battle for our brains is already waging, right? And And that's true in the digital age with all kinds of technologies and all kinds of features that are embedded into everyday technologies and information warfare and influence campaigns and social media. Um, this book takes us a step farther than all of that, even while engaging with all of those issues and looks at, um, you know, the possibility that while all of those are ways of trying to hack and track our brains, none of them give direct access to our brains. And there's this coming age of widespread brain wearables, which are very much like um, the sensors that people are already accustomed to in their smartwatches or their rings that track their heart rate or their um, breaths or body temperature. Uh, and instead, it looks at the integration of brain sensors into our everyday devices like are, you know, headphones or earbuds or watches or smart tattoos that we would wear. Um, and how all of the major tech companies are really starting to recognize, okay, we've, you know, embedded sensors into all of these other places, but we haven't embedded sensors into devices that start to track the electrical activity in the brain that would allow us to decode um, a lot of the information from health-based information to content-based information, like what a person is feeling or their biases or their, um, you know, automatic reactions to advertisements that are posted. And so those sensors, uh, you know, uh, neurotech companies have already started to develop the products and major tech companies have started to embed those sensors into their everyday products. And so coming on the market, you know, starting from this spring all the way through the next few years will be an increasing and growing um, marketplace of brain sensors as part of our everyday technology that tracks our brains. And so the battle for our brains is in that world of growing brain transparency where not only can we access our own brain activity, but 
um, others can too, whether it's the corporations who are the sellers of those devices or the, um, you know, the uh, government who seeks access to that information directly from tech companies. And each of these players wants to gain access to and to change and uh, potentially manipulate our brains. And so the battle for our brains is who will own our brains and will we continue to maintain cognitive liberty and freedom over our brains for self-determination over our mental experiences? Will we control them or will they be from the outside? A few examples were, well, many examples were brought up in the book. One that came to mind early on was, let's say there was an organization and there were people wanting to group up to unionize against the organization or for certain uh, wages that they wanted. They could be examined from the outside in regards to this, preventing such an issue. How might that work? Um, how might cognitive liberty work in the in the relationship with these companies, or mm -hmm. like to how how might getting into the minds of individuals work to figure out? Oh, okay, it looks like this group of twenty four people would want to unionize and get higher wages, yeah. and it could be prevented before it would even happen. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so first I should say brain wearables are not like mind reading in the way that people think of mind reading, right? So if I'm thinking like, oh gosh, I'm going to unionize, you're not going to pick that up from brain sensors. Um, but uh, let's start with like, how might an employer have access to it? Well, employers are already starting to... Um, to require a number of employees to wear brain wearables in the workplace. And so there are companies that are already selling devices that companies are already using, requiring employees to track their own brains for things like, you know, are they tired or are they awake? Are they um, suffering from fatigue levels that could be dangerous if they're a commercial driver? Are they, um, you know, uh, is their mind wandering or are they paying attention? Are they bored or engaged at work? Where do they work best at home or in the office? These kinds of metrics have started to become part of workplaces or, you know, a, a kind of area called cognitive ergonomics, which starts to look at whether a person's brain is overloaded and could there be a balance that's struck to try to decrease their brain overload. So companies have both offered this as a kind of wellness product to people for meditation or for honing one's own attention or have required it for people who are in spaces that are safety related, that they can justify the requirement of it. So then the question is, what can they learn from that? Well, they can learn all the things I just listed, things like, are they tired? Is their mind wandering? Are they bored? Are they engaged? Are they awake? But you might also um, expect that since there have been a number of efforts by companies like Google and Amazon to try to engage in union busting activities by recognizing, you know, through things like calendar entries and looking across calendar entries through surveillance in the workplace, who's meeting when they wouldn't expect those meetings to occur. Um, or, you know, where through surveillance cameras or other devices might they learn about gatherings of people who are coming together in ways that would suggest activities of unionization, um, even doing things like scanning and, and reading emails. And brains of people, particularly brain activity of people, could be one of those metrics that might give information as well. So if an employer were tracking employee brain activity and were to track multiple different people's brain activity and look for associations between them, in particular, any kind of synchronization between the brain activity of different employees, especially when they wouldn't expect to see that synchronization, because when you're working with somebody, your brainwave activity starts to synchronize. Um, so they might look for those patterns of synchronization as one more piece of evidence as they're trying to detect union activity um, and use that as a basis for, again, additional interference with unionization efforts by employees. This synchronization topic you bring up is very important because it makes me think that people are only powerful as groups, like the book Tribes once talked about how we are so relevant as a community in some form by ourselves, an island, we don't really get much done. So if there is a controlling force of sorts, then it would want to examine where there is some sort of grouping or synchronization, as you mentioned there, which is a cool concept to think about. Yeah. Yeah. That's in employment. Now you also bring it up in the category of larger grouping, which is the government's. How might a government use 
data from wearables or other to see what people are doing to maybe manage them or coerce them in a direction of sort. Yeah. So, I mean, governments, you know, I, I have this imagined scenario in the introduction of my book where an employee is being required to wear earbuds that track their brain activity in the workplace. Um, and then eventually we get to the end of the scenario where the government comes in and, and um, issues a subpoena for all of the employee-related records looking for evidence of um, basically uh, synchronization between employees and that synchronization uh, starts to tell them about things like, you know, are, are their collaborators or co-conspirators for a crime. So they gather emails, they gather phone call messages, but they also gather brainwave data that's been collected by the employer to see if there's this kind of synchronization. Now, that's, you know, in today's world, far-fetched in that, um, you know, they're not likely to go in and collect a lot of brainwave data. But it's not so far-fetched because, you know, governments have already done things like collected Fitbit data or um, issued subpoenas for smartwatch information in order to find out uh, information about a crime. Like, was a person physically active at the time that a crime was committed if their alibi was that they were sleeping? Or, you know, was their heart rate suggestive of physical movement or activity or, you know, violent crime as opposed to, uh, you know, sitting quietly and having a cup of tea, which, you know, maybe was their alibi instead. And so that kind of evidence can be informative for the government to subpoena. And it isn't hard to imagine a world in which they would start to subpoena that. It's especially not hard to imagine that given that um, governments have already used brainwave data across the world to interrogate criminal suspects for recognition memory. And this is much more direct access rather than like if somebody's wearing brain wearables in their everyday activity, a government issuing a subpoena to collect that data may be different than um, bringing somebody into a police station, for example, asking them to wear uh, a headset that tracks their brain activity while showing them different images of a crime scene. Um, and this is also something that's occurred where they're showing crime scene images to see if the person issues any kind of recognition memory, any sort of signal in the brain that would show that they're recognizing a crime scene detail that they shouldn't recognize because it wasn't released to the public. And it's something that unless you participated in the crime or were a witness to the crime, you wouldn't know about that particular detail or wouldn't have that kind of recognition. Um, and so there's a company out of the U.S. called Brainwave Sciences who's been selling this to a lot of uh, different government and law enforcement agencies worldwide. Uh, and then, you know, governments are investing in things like biometrics. So, you know, we're familiar, most of us, if you've traveled internationally recently, you know, you've you've looked into an eye scanner or you've had your face um, go through facial recognition software. When I recently, um, for the first time, I, I was traveling somewhere abroad, I can't remember where, and I go and I walk up to the gate agent to show them my boarding pass on my phone. And they're like, oh, no, not necessary. Just stand in front of this camera. And the camera scans my face. And then my boarding pass pops up. Um, and, you know, that was surprising. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that's happening. And now governments are investing in more secure forms of biometrics because people's faces can be used um, you know, if you can get an image of a person's face and make a, you know, 3D image of a person's face, for example, and a security system is based on facial recognition, um, it can be used to hack into different systems. And so a more secure one is hidden biometrics. And a hidden biometric could include, for example, brain activity, like how you sing a song in your head versus how I sing a song in my head. Um, and so governments worldwide are investing in trying to develop brain biometrics is a functional biometric that people could use to authenticate themselves. And if that happens, if they're successful in doing so, um, then we could have to give our brain activity data to cross borders or to authenticate ourselves or to enter into secure areas, for example. So, you know, I think the coming world is one in which there will be many opportunities for both companies, but also governments to be able to access our brain activity. You mentioned that that could be like nationwide identification systems built around the world and our identification plus the amazing amount of data analysis that's happening right now together it seems to be that we are converging into a direction where 
information on us is available. Predictions are very easy to be made. Is there any counter to this convergence that may be happening in the next few years? So, you know, I think there's both social uh, countermeasures that people are putting into place. I think, you know, the more I've talked about this, the more people are like, no, thank you. I don't want my brain activity data being monitored by others. Um, and, you know, so you could imagine that people will be more mindful of the use of everyday brain wearables than they have been about other ones or that they'll be more mindful about their brain privacy than they will be about other forms of privacy that they've given up much more readily and much more easily. Um, but, uh, you know, that's sort of at the demand side of things. I think at the supply side, you see a number of at least the younger neurotech companies recognizing that brain data may be uniquely sensitive. And as a result, the governance or the commodification of brain data needs to be handled differently than other personal data of the past. Um, and they recognize that in part, like I think that they will not be successful in having a lot of people want to buy their products if they don't have special measures in place that offers greater security around brain data. Um, and then there are a lot of conversations that are happening worldwide from the UN to UNESCO and countries worldwide, states within the United States about the possibility of special rights that might pertain to our cognitive and effective experiences. And that could take the form of, of biometric laws. Um, it could take the form of rights that are specific uh, to neurotechnologies or regulations that are specific to neurotechnologies, or more generally, something like cognitive liberty, which I've advocated for, which instead of being technology specific or instead of being brain specific, really is looking at the way different technologies are affecting our brains and mental experiences, our cognitive and affective um, states and how the interaction between us and our technologies really requires that we rethink what rules and regulations ought to be. And so there has been, you know, uh, a lot of good and high level discussions around what a human right to cognitive liberty could look like and what the additional human rights could be updated to give us a space for mental reprieve and solace. Does cognitive liberty represent that we have reached the point where the analysis and computation on the other side algorithms have overtaken humans in some qualities. And so if we don't set some sort of barrier to those things, then uh, we will be, it's almost like a person that's drugged in a way that things are out of their hands. But if they had not used those drugs, they would not be out of their hands. Same thing with algorithms and other items impacting yeah. human form thoughts on that yeah, it's a good question so um cognitive liberty in part is about that right it's about the loss of self um and meaning cognitive liberty would protect people from that loss um and certainly the more technologies are designed with features to be addictive and to have people um, engage automatically rather than critically engaging their mental processes where they're fully present rather than just acting like an addict, um, then, you know, the, the more we fall in the addict category in interaction with our technologies, habitually picking up devices, habitually returning to platforms and social media platforms for likes and for hearts and for, you know, the kind of feedback and little dopamine hits that we get from each of those interactions, um, the more we're acting like drug addicts rather than free individuals who are able to think freely and think critically. Um, and so cognitive liberty is about reclaiming a space for cognitive freedom for people to think freely in the age of digital technologies. I like that it's cognitive and also liberty. Liberty takes me into the freedom or also like the legal domain. What what are some of the strongest points that the legal domain would bring to this category to protect people that they can do aside from the technology just making its way forward? So I envision cognitive liberty as both a right to self-determination and a right from interference. And that has legal aspects on both sides. The right to um, self-determination over our brains and mental experiences means that there's a right of informational self-access to our own brains. Um, there's right of informational self-access to 
the things that are affecting our brains, having greater transparency into the systems that are doing so, um, and a right to change to uh, both be able to um, improve our brains and mental experiences and to diminish them potentially if you know that were something that made sense to do. Um, that right too is a right that's rooted in self-ownership. And that right too, as rooted in self-ownership, dates back to Locke and um, the kind of concepts of the individual and the rights individuals have over their own bodies and brains and mental experiences. And that idea of self-ownership being the original form of ownership itself, the original form of, of rights and property rights, is that kind of original concept, I think. The right from is a right from interference um, by others. And that right from is really rooted in rights to privacy uh, and in particular mental privacy, having a right against interference with our brains and mental experiences, except when it might yield to strong enough societal interest because privacy interests are always weighed against societal interest. And then the absolute right to freedom of thought, um, which is you know, both the precursor to freedom of speech, but also a right in and of itself recognized in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, that right has not been understood as robustly uh, to apply to things beyond religious uh, freedoms and beliefs. And I think it should be recognized to prevent interception, manipulation, and punishment for our robust thoughts and mental experiences and our you know, kind of visual images in our mind. So here, it's really about mind reading, right, which is preventing the interception of, of mind reading in the sense that we associate ourselves with our minds, um, preventing manipulation of those thoughts and preventing punishment of those thoughts. It's very hefty because it is the one space we have that is uncheckable directly currently, but were it to be released, that would, I'm sure, make a good percentage of individuals quite nervous right away because yeah. they have thoughts in their mind they wouldn't put out there or that they're planning something or whatever it might be. That's people. As far as different countries around the world, do any countries or uh, thought um, paradigms of countries around the world come to mind as where this is most quickly taking place right now, efforts to use prediction to manage the populace? So, I mean, if you look at what has been described as probably the largest surveillance state, it is China, right? And and if you look at everything from the, um, you know, social credit systems that I don't think are fully kind of up and operational, but the hope, I think, of the Chinese government is to have that kind of system where... Um, your everyday behaviors as quantified by the surveillance state of everything from your digital activities to sensors to video cameras that are tracking your every move to GPS location data um, could be used to inform a robust system of actually, you know, truly tracking, but also shaping what people think or quelling what people think and chilling what people think. Um, so I think probably the most sophisticated and far along in this regard is China. Um, but I think you see seeds of that same kind of surveillance and that same kind of influence campaigns and cognitive warfare coming out of nearly every country in the world. Um, and not just companies, uh, sorry, not just countries, but also companies who are either state-sponsored companies or not state-sponsored companies, but where backdoors exist for governments to be able to gather the data that's being collected and commodified by those companies as well. Um, so I think it's, you know, while while certainly the portrayal of, of China is that it is the farthest ahead in this regard, I think we nevertheless see similar strains of that in every country. Interesting. When you mention backdoors, it makes me think of, I had cybersecurity expert Mikko Hippinen from Finland on before, and he talked about how with cybersecurity, you don't see it like uh, with missiles and such. It's behind the scenes, and you won't know a country's ability in that category until it's too late for the most part. Yeah. Is it the same way in this category that the most advanced efforts to uh, get into the people's minds will be hidden until it's already very direct? Or would it be something where it'd be showcased publicly, like 
everybody, we are doing this and it's for your own good and everybody would join in on it. Probably a little of both, but I, you know, I think to the extent that people are trying to do influence campaigns, those influence campaigns are oftentimes not made apparent, right? They, they, it's not obvious to people that they're part of an influence campaign. I think this is what, um, the U.S. government is anxious about with respect to TikTok is is whether or not TikTok is actually designed as an influence campaign to shape people's perceptions or as a way of mass collection of of data about people that could be used to compromise them or blackmail them or influence them or even just target them. Um, and that may be right. I mean, right. Like, I don't have good information about what's actually happening with TikTok. I think you know, proponents of TikTok say, no, no, it's, it's, you know, like any other social media platform, they've just perfected the algorithm to really give people more of what they want. There are lots of stories about the Chinese government, you know, interfering with the operation and use of TikTok, including sending particular messages to go viral and, you know, de-emphasizing other messages, which would suggest a kind of informational campaign to shape how people think. Um, and, you know, that's when you have state sponsored, you have you know, examples like a older example at Facebook where they were, you know, using something called the emotional contagion experiment, where without letting people know that they were doing so, they were changing their feed and doing A-B testing to see if they had like mostly negative messages, if, you know, how would that drive people to behave? And if they had mostly positive messages, how would it drive people to behave? And, you know, that's just a you know, study and manipulation, like, can you change what people are seeing? And how does that affect their behavior? And does it manipulate them? A lot of times this stuff is happening right out in the open. You know, most advertisement is right out in the open. Um, but it's designed to shape how you think and the kind of brand identities and associations you make with it. It's not like they're hidden from view. Um, but the messaging and the purpose of it may be hidden by view. So, you know, kind of back in the day, a Super Bowl commercial would look like, you know, a guy drinking a beer where he's driving some fancy red sports car and there's lots of scantily clad women who are throwing themselves at him. Um, and, you know, the association that you know, they were trying to develop at the time was like, look, you know, if you drink our beer, you'll be cool. And, you know, you'll have lots of people who are attracted to you and who want to you know, be with you as a result. I think there's not quite such vulgar messaging anymore in um, in Super Bowl commercials, but the same kind of implicit associations of, you know, drink this food or, you know, drink this drink or eat this food or wear this clothing and you will be, you know, cool. It's trying to implicitly create associations or brand associations or identity associations with products. All that's happening right on the open, right? I mean, it's not like the advertisements are subliminal messaging. It's just that the purpose is to subtly shape how people think. Um, and, you know, that that's what people do all the time. How somebody dresses is designed to, you know, oftentimes portray a particular image of themselves or shape how other people view them. So, you know, many of these things are right out of the open. Where we draw the line is tricky because we are trying to influence, if not manipulate each other or persuade each other all the time in everyday life. When do we think that, a kind of manipulation is so harmful or wrongful that we ought to put guardrails around it. That's true. A lot of it is happening consistently here, there clothing campaigns where it's not even maybe so direct like it was before, but it might be that a, a person is presented as higher status, but also looking down at the regular individuals so that if you got that product, you would also be higher status and looking down at the regular individuals, thus right. making you no longer a regular individual and it, it plays on uh, individuals weaknesses quite well and that emotional contagion study mentioned very valuable because that was a small just a bit of their enterprise and it has such an impact which yeah. makes you think that something larger than that which is what other companies can do now would be could completely alter someone's week right. or month or a year as far as their their mental state right exactly. we're very vulnerable in a way or yeah, oh actually on that one as people are we do we adapt quick enough or are people highly vulnerable based on how things have shifted so quickly? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, you know, I like here's where I think the scientific research would be very valuable to, to know this, right? Is it just that the technologies have gotten more precise? Is it that we're at greater risk because of the ways in which our brains can be hacked and tracked? 
Is it that we're just as much at risk, but we can now quantify it? I don't fully know. I, you know, I have the sense that it is um, different in kind and that, you know, if I picked up a book and somebody tried to persuade me in that book, it doesn't have things like auto scroll features where the book just keeps on going eventually. So it's hard for me to put a good book down. Um, but it's not because there are addictive features, right? Like my book, right? Hard for you to put down, but it's, it's not like there are literally addictive features that are put into the book, you know, versus studying the brain as some of the technology companies have done to try to figure out what is it that's literally going to give you a little hit of dopamine in your brain so that you keep coming back compulsively to the platform as opposed to this is a phenomenal book and I just can't put it down and I've got to go back and read and find out what happens next. So, It's a key point you bring up. I am very attuned to these items. I think of myself sometimes as a walking prefrontal cortex because I'm very detailed with the items that uh, come across. And even with scrolling, the fact that it's up and down, it's connected with our like head nod, which makes us more agreeable to it versus sideways. And also I think Andrew Huberman talked about when we look sideways, it's more of an alert state than uh, up and down. It's like agreeing and just falling into it. So even scrolling sideways, turning the phone sideways to scroll, I've noticed has a impact on suddenly having more control. Interesting. I like having a bit more control in the the moment, if you will. Now, one thing is that you had broken the book up into two sections. One was tracking the brain. Mm -hmm. The other was hacking the brain. Mm -hmm. Is there anything on our end that we can do as people to avoid the hacking of our brain? Or is this a bigger picture type thing? So I think so. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are at least some things we can do to engage critical thinking more than automatic and reflexive thinking. The more we can slow down, the better off we are. Um, and that's everything from even just becoming aware of what companies are doing. So if you know that a clickbait headline is more likely to get you to click on it because of, um, you know, the outrageous comment or invoking fear or using tactics that play to your cognitive biases and shortcuts. Um, and even just armed with that knowledge, you then see the next headline and you think, you know what, I know that that's actually designed to draw me in and I'm not going to let it happen. Right. Or, um, you know, turning off notifications on your phone. Right. So every new application that you install on your phone tries to get permissions to uh, have notifications pop up. And I've silenced the notifications on my phone, including, you know, text messaging and emails and the, you know, little alerts that pop up because each of those are designed to hijack your attention and to distract you from being able to focus. Um, and so turning those off and silencing those sounds um, can be really helpful or even just setting self limits. Like I'm only going to spend, you know, 30 minutes on whatever platforms today. And I'm just like setting a timer beside like a hard timer, not even a digital timer. Like I'm just going to put a little timer and it's going to go beep, 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 beep. And I have to override that timer in order to keep on device. You know, these things that force you from, um, you know, these kind of automatic reflexive kinds of thinking into being more critical about how you're spending your time and how you're thinking about spending your time can be helpful to slow yourself down. Um, and so, you know, those are just some of them. There are a lot of different strategies, but some of these strategies but to become more mindful of your own self and what's happening and how your brain is being affected and what the triggers or primes are in the environment that are seeking to activate you in particular ways can help you not be activated in those ways and have more autonomy and control over your own brain and mental experiences. You made me think of something interesting there. If we had not been so advanced with algorithms and such, maybe 10 years ago, um, or if, uh, we, uh, if we had been much more advanced at that time and already could connect to our brain waves, would there have been notifications that said, uh, can this program connect directly to your brain waves? Because it would be very beneficial for the company. Is it the fact that we weren't so advanced that there wasn't so much of a, whoa, 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 what's going on? But now that it's getting so connected to us, there's a bit of, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think... I think the more we're interconnected with machines and more we're in, like, whether that's, you know, even just this format, right, which is you've gone from, you know, a three dimensional human to a 
uh, image in my screen that I'm talking to, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, that idea that, that our brains are processing other people and interacting with other people as if they're sitting across from us, but they're not, right? And, and like you're disembodied, right? So I, I'm talking to you with your shoulders up, but my brain has had to fill in that like the rest of you is there, but your body cues and, you know, um, bodily movements and the, the subtle cues that we pick up from each other from everyday interactions are being um, diminished in many ways as we interact via video and telephone as opposed to in-person communications. And to the extent that that replaces, you know, a child, for example, majority of their social interactions is primarily happening through these kinds of interactions or through digital messaging with each other or through videos and filtered videos as opposed to real life, their version of reality is being distorted and changed and their ability to truly understand the difference between real and fake and, um, you know, have the full experience of human to human interaction and what that does and how that shapes you and changes you. All of those are, um, you know, being diminished and stripped away in many ways in everyday life. And so I think it's not just, you know, sensors that are being attached to our bodies. It's the way in which we're interacting with each other, where there's less and less human to human interaction. And I think that became more and more normalized for people during COVID when there was a lot of social isolation. Um, but, you know, as the height of the pandemic is now hopefully behind us and we are in this kind of um, post uh, height of pandemic world, that social interaction hasn't come back fully for people and um, and their experiences have been narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And so, you know, imagine a world in which most of us are interacting with each other in virtual reality instead of in physical reality what does that do to our perception of self and our perception of others? It's very limiting. I've thought about this in terms of bandwidth, the highest bandwidth is in person, then lower video. And the lowest bandwidth one book mentioned was the, the clicking a like on somebody's yeah. thing is a one, one bit, one bit connection, yeah. which is highly impactful to some. When you mentioned the younger individuals, it makes me think, I get this feeling that the younger are more, everything is converging almost against them and the individuals with the critical thinking ability and experience and understanding and seeing how things go are the uh, older than the young. Is it, is the hefty responsibility on the older individuals to manage this coming wave because the youth. Probably, although I'll say this, which is, you know, my youngest are still playing and they're still imagining and they're still, you know, um, you know, they're they're having play dates with their friends where they have a robust world of imagination with toys rather than with, you know, screens and devices. Um, and so, you know, if you think about critical thinking, part of that crit critical thinking is imagination and creativity and, um, you know, the empathy and the resilience that comes through those uh, everyday interactions with one another. Whereas, you know, my parents, are more addicted to their phones and, you know, you'll be sitting with them at a um, dinner table and, you know, it's hard for them to put their phones down. Um, so, so I'm not positive that it's the older who have more critical thinking and the younger who have less. So unless we narrow that band to think like the younger are the like 20 somethings and the older are the like 40 somethings, right. Where it's a narrower band of people that we're talking about. But I think, I think the true spread that you see from the youngest in the population to the oldest in the population, I've been surprised by how many older members of the population are addicted to their phones um, versus the youngest where parents are exercising, you know, more parental supervision over screen time and are able to help teach children digital health in ways that I think the older generation has not learned. That's a great point. I would almost segment it into the oldest, the algorithms just, they didn't grow up with them. And so they just completely overtake them. Yeah. And then for the mid group is part of the creators of the algorithms and get what's going on. It's like a sense of like the captains of the ship and yeah. the, the youth are a good chunk of the youth is highly affected by the algorithms. It's almost out of their control, but there are some that there still is a, that playful energy and let's reach for life and 
what can we figure it out? Some little segmentations there. On the point of the young, what are what is one thing you're most glad about for your young as far as this category and uh, what can be for them? And what is the one thing you'd be most worried about for them? I think the thing I'm glad about is that um, this category of technology will likely normalize brain health and wellness in a way that um, we haven't to date, right? So the rest of our physical health is something that people recognize and take charge of and have insights into from, you know, uh, their everyday sensors to blood tests to, you know, just the way in which we've quantified that information over time. But brain, uh, like tracking one's own brain health or focus or, you know, anything has not been accessible to the average person. And the result is that the visualization of mental health and wellness, the visualization of brain experiences, the tracking of it hasn't been possible up until now. So I'm, I'm optimistic that that will normalize mental health. And that would be really valuable for the younger generation because, you know, as physical health and longevity improve, neurological disease and suffering continue to rise. And so bringing those things into better calibration for each other would be terrific. The thing I'm not excited about for them is the potential that that normalization also leads to the normalization of neural surveillance. And there's been a significant normalization of all kinds of surveillance in society. And if our brains become part of that normalized surveillance, I think we go from what could be very good to something that could be very dystopian and, and likely you know, undermined what I think is a pivotal aspect of human flourishing. This is true. Three last quick ones on this. One, I wanted to bring back in because I just recalled artificial intelligence making the waves across all platforms the last three months. How does that link with this? Is it being used behind these efforts? What are your thoughts on the huge move towards chat GPT and using artificial intelligence and auto GPT to get things done rapidly yeah. and replace a lot of people? Well, I mean, it's the convergence of improvements in engineering of brain sensors and artificial intelligence and pattern recognition and detection and decoding that has enabled this huge um, and rapid advance in the space of brain wearables and neurotechnology. And so as AI continues to improve, so too will the ability to decode the human brain. And generative AI makes that all the more powerful, both in... Um, you know, uh, thought to text and thought to speech, for example, through the ability to do um, generative AI completion or generative AI creation just from thoughts. Um, and uh, it also allows for much more precise training on individual brain data and customization of these technologies to individuals. Um, so the rapid advance makes this space also rapidly evolving. Um, and, uh, and, and sort of all of the issues that, that ethically and legally are challenging for AI are just as challenging on this space on steroids. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think the convergence in this space is part of the reason why people have, I, I think, recognized this is the right moment to be talking about the issues that I raise in the book because they, they see it as kind of perfectly well-timed with the broader anxieties about what's happening in AI. This is very true. And I know somebody whose quote is always timing is everything. And it's very yeah. key on when you showcase something. Yeah. My last question is a two part. Are there any individuals who have guided you most along the way in your path? And then lastly, what would be a message you would want people to take away from the book? So um, I've been incredibly fortunate in that I've had a lot of really terrific mentors along the way and people who've just really invested heavily in my thinking and in my career. Um, and in my friendship, you know, and, and just as kind of life coaches and, and lifelong friends, um, some of those people include Jim Coleman at Duke University or Hank Greeley, who is a terrific bioethicist and law professor at Stanford University or, um, you know, others, I think, in the space and in the field, like my dissertation advisor and philosopher, Alex Rosenberg. You know, there, there have been people in each and every space who've just been incredibly generous. The neuroscientist community have been amazing. The neurotech community have been welcoming and willing to answer all of my questions and engage with me deeply about these questions. So that's been, I think, really helpful. And it's with mentors that we can ask the hard questions and flourish and feel like we have the support to, 
you know, step out on our own and to be able to, um, you know, dare to offer our own opinions and ideas and big ideas and have confidence in those ideas and in sharing them. Um, I forgot your second point. I mean, the second part of the question. And then what would be a takeaway you would want people to absorb from your book if there was a message you would bring? Yeah, I'd say the biggest message is we have a moment to get this right. Um, but we have, you know, one last moment to get this right. You know, the um, age of consumer brain wearables has arrived. Uh, the commodification of our brains has already begun. The hacking and tracking of our brains is already here. But it isn't happening at scale, at least with brain wearables quite yet, right? In the digital age, um, there are many ways in which our brains are being hacked and tracked, but the direct access to the part of ourselves that we hold back has not yet occurred at scale, even though it is happening in smaller pockets across society. So we have a moment to get ahead of this. And that's it. That's our last moment. Like there is no clawing it back. You know, rights are much more difficult to reclaim once lost. Um, and so the one message I would hope is that um, that people really recognize and realize is that these are concrete, real like issues that have arrived today and we have a moment to do something about it. And if we do, this is a category of technology. This is progress in society that could empower us. And if we don't, it could be incredibly dystopian and Orwellian. So it's incumbent upon us to get it right for ourselves, for the future of humanity, for our children, um, to be able to continue to flourish as humans. There's a sense of urgency to it. And I can tell when I read content that it will apply in upcoming years. Professor Nida Farahani, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show, covering a bit from this wonderful book, The Battle for Your Brain, and describing related concepts to neurotechnology and protecting our brains in the future. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. I very much did as well. And we are out.